If you know me at all, you know I understand how challenging family can be. How complex our relationships sometimes are with the people who share our blood. Who, for better and worse, with their presence or their absence, shaped the person we are today. And I also know all too well that blood isn't always thicker than water. Now, I've covered a lot of individual disappearances on this show already, and a few pairs. But today's case centers on five people who went missing at the same time. An entire family that was almost erased from history. And not to foreshadow too much, but I do mean almost. I'm Sarah Turney, and this is Disappearances, a Spotify original from Parcast. Every Thursday, I'll discuss a new missing person case ripped from history. I want to better understand the many reasons people disappear and the impact their absences can have on those left behind. Today, I'd like you to meet two hardworking parents and their three young daughters. On one Sunday afternoon in 1958, they went out for a drive and never returned. Though there's plenty of evidence to suggest what could have happened to them, their case remains unsolved to this day. They're the Martin family. Ken, Barbara, Barbie, Susie, and Virginia. Hear that? It's the sound of someone whacking the ground with a rake. Specifically, they're beating around the bush, which we've done enough of in this ad too, so let's get right to it. The new moneymaker scratch-off from the Ohio Lottery doesn't beat around the bush. Money maker. Play the game and you could win money, up to $2 million. With more than $88 million in prizes, ranging from $50 to $500, Moneymaker cuts right to the cash. Lottery players are subject to Ohio laws and commission regulations. Play responsibly. It feels like we're all being told to go on this diet, take that supplement. Ozempic will give you depression, but you know what'll cure that? Weed. Or you could try to balance your hormones. At Science Versus, we're like... What the f*** is going on? Forget the crap online and listen to Science Versus. Just the facts. Oh, and a bunch of stupid jokes. What is a ghost's favorite fruit? Booberries. That's Science VS. New season out on Spotify soon. There's a new class of blockbuster drugs. Drugs like Ozempic. They're changing bodies. And all of a sudden, just the weight starts falling off. Fortunes. It just got too expensive. They're just bank breakers. And industries. There was a lot of excitement. There was a lot of skepticism. The impact of these drugs from business to health is just beginning. From the journal, Trillion Dollar Shot. Find it in the journal feed wherever you get your podcasts. Come Christmas time, there's no place like Portland, Oregon. The city's full, but not too crowded. Chilly, but not too cold. And when dusted with snow, the rolling forests of the Pacific Northwest make everything seem a little more magical. In December 1958, Ken and Barbara Martin are living in a quiet neighborhood in northeastern Portland, filled with tidy, compact, shingled homes, mostly two stories, and neat, manicured lawns. The Martins have three young daughters, Susie, 11, Virginia, 13, 
and Barbie 14. And they lovingly refer to their home as Martin Manor. The holidays have always been a special time for their family, filled with annual traditions. Each year, Mr. Martin delivers large wooden candy canes to all of their neighbors. Everyone on the block decorates their lawns with them in the weeks leading up to Christmas. Mrs. Martin always digs out the ornaments and stockings. And this year, she's filled a large wicker basket with Christmas candy in the dining room. The girls have been eyeing it for a while. After an evening party on the 6th, Ken and Barbara decide that Sunday, December 7th, will be the perfect day for another favorite pastime. The morning begins with a thick blanket of fog hanging over Portland. But as temperatures climb into the 50s, the cloud cover is burnt off. The girls are up early, reading and getting ready for their morning guests, Barbara's cousins, the Evans. Looking back on the visit, Mr. and Mrs. Evans won't recall anything unusual. Their children played with the three girls, the parents caught up. At some point, the Evans invite the Martins to Sunday dinner, but Ken and Barbara respectfully decline. They have plans to, quote, go up the highway and look for some Christmas greens. Wreaths, boughs, maybe a tree. After their guests leave, the Martin girls throw on some casual clothes since they'll be out in the forest where it's muddy. Mrs. Martin tidies the house. She places the breakfast dishes in the sink, packs some oranges as snacks for the road, and takes a package of ground beef out of the freezer to thaw, just in case they make it back in time for dinner. Meanwhile, Mr. Martin removes the rear seats in their red and white Ford station wagon to make room for the day's haul. He's used to this. The family loves the outdoors. They belong to a local hiking club and make regular trips into the vast nature just beyond city limits. Sometime between 1.30 and 2 p.m., neighbors see the Martin's car back out of the driveway and pull away. Then they head east on Highway 30. Now, it's important for you to have a clear mental picture of this. So bear with me while I run through some of the geographical logistics. Today, Highway 30 starts northwest of Portland and travels along the southern coast of the Columbia River, which in Oregon runs parallel to the equator and literally acts as the border between Oregon to the south and Washington to the north. All of the locations in today's story are right on this highway. So anytime I say the Martins drive X amount of miles away from Portland, I mean due east, like a compass. They're not driving 10 miles of roundabout back roads to end up three physical miles from where they started. They're approximately that many miles from home. Okay, so when the Martins pull onto Highway 30, they're most likely headed to Larch Mountain, an extinct volcano about 40 miles away from Portland. The area's home to tons of hiking trails and farms to purchase Christmas trees and greens around the holidays. They've done the day trip many times before, so it should be a leisurely afternoon. If they end early, they might even stop for a late lunch slash early dinner at a restaurant somewhere. They should be on their way back to Portland with a bushy Douglas fir not long after dusk. They'll sleep well, looking forward to trimming the tree in the coming days resting for their busy week ahead. The girls have school the next morning and Mr. Martin has an 8 a.m. meeting. 
Ken oversees the repair department at Eccles Electric Home Service in Portland. He always arrives to work by 7.45 a.m., if not earlier. Which is why when his boss pulls into the parking lot and doesn't see Ken's car in its usual spot, Mr. Eccles finds it very strange. Meanwhile, Susie and Virginia are both marked absent from their middle school homerooms, which is, again, unusual. Mrs. Martin will almost always call or send a note ahead of time if the girls will be out for any reason. Charlotte Dorsey finds it especially odd. She's Susie and Virginia's aunt, and she works at their school as a teacher. She's very close with the whole family. She even lives in the same neighborhood as her brother. So she knows that they sometimes extend the weekend a little with their trips. But Ken and Barbara would have mentioned something. When she gets a chance, she calls the Martins home to check if everything's okay. Barbara doesn't answer. Charlotte doesn't want to jump to conclusions, but when she calls the high school where Barbie's a freshman, she finds out Barbie's also not in school. Now, it's unclear exactly what happens next. I'm assuming the Martins family and friends scramble to find out where they are. What happened to them? Remember, there are no cell phones in the 50s, so they could be safe and sound without a way to get in touch with anyone. But around 9.30 p.m., a call comes in from the Multnomah County Sheriff's Office from a man named Edward Lenz. Edward informs the responding officer that nobody has seen or heard from the Martin family for more than a day after heading out to Large Mountain. When asked, he says that Ken's boss, Mr. Eccles, told him to file the report. The deputy sheriff dispatches three police cruisers to comb the area around Large Mountain and one to the Martin's home. Officers arrive at Martin Manor around 11 p.m. And as they do, neighbors and friends gather outside. Charlotte Dorsey joins them around 11.05. From outside, she watches officials comb her brother's house for evidence, but they don't find anything unusual. The ground beef is still on the kitchen counter, now defrosted. The Sunday paper is spread out on the table. The dishes are in the sink. The house is exactly as the Martins left it, clearly with the intention of returning. The most substantial piece of evidence authorities learn comes from Charlotte as they're leaving. She says that Ken and Barbara both have heart conditions. She's worried that maybe something could have happened while driving. By Tuesday morning, the front page of the Oregonian newspaper reads, Mountain searched for family. And the investigation to find the Martins swings into full force. Officials received tips confirming that the Martins frequented Large Mountain for their Christmas greens. Family, friends, and community members joined to help canvas the area. There's no shortage of hands. Over the course of the investigation, literally thousands of people will help try to find the Martins. One man walked 300 miles along the Columbia River looking for clues. Law enforcement receives countless tips and leads. Many seem promising, but everything comes with a healthy dose of uncertainty. And this becomes a running theme throughout the entire investigation. For example, at a Christmas tree farm coincidentally named Martin's Acreage, 
one woman tells law enforcement that she remembers meeting a family of five, two parents and three young girls who joked about also being named Martin. When questioned, the owner of Martin's acreage says, yeah, he remembers a couple with three girls and a station wagon stopping by, but a lot of families passed through that day, so he couldn't be sure. When officials showed him pictures of the Martin girls, he couldn't positively ID them, maybe because the pictures police used were three years old, or maybe because it really wasn't them. Now, this isn't the only alleged sighting. Multiple people swear to police that they saw the Martin's car near Larch Mountain that Sunday. But unfortunately, officials quickly learned that there were multiple families driving red and white station wagons in the area that day, and some of them were Fords. So it's impossible to know if any of them was actually the Martin family. Eventually, search efforts expand beyond Larch Mountain. Nine days after the Martin family's disappearance, Charlotte Dorsey puts out a $500 reward for information, later raising it to $1,000. Nothing comes of it. Two weeks after the Martin family's disappearance, as far as the public's concerned, there are no suspects, no evidence, and no leads. So the civilian search parties stop looking. With Christmas only a few days away, they return home with a new appreciation for what's waiting for them. Authorities believe Mr. Martin lost control of the wheel on Highway 30. With temperatures rising, conditions were slushy and the drive to Larch Mountain is winding. It wouldn't be the first time a car accidentally skidded off a cliff and into the icy river below. The problem is, there's almost always some indication of where the driver went off-road. The car's usually found in a week or less. But authorities don't find skid marks. They don't find anything. Then, on December 23rd, an envelope arrives at Martin Manor. It's a credit card bill for Ken, dated Sunday, December 7th, from a service station in Cascade Locks, 20 miles east of Larch Mountain meaning authorities have been looking in the wrong place this whole time. Sixteen days after their disappearance, officials learned that the Martin family stopped for gas at a service station in Cascade Locks, 20 miles away from where investigators had been focusing their search efforts. According to research compiled by author J.B. Fisher, there had been earlier suggestions that the Martins drove further east than Larch Mountain. The tips were followed up on, but not extensively, likely due to the fact that at a certain point, there were a lot of different law enforcement departments from different jurisdictions involved in the case, all the way up to the FBI. So somewhere along the way, wires likely got crossed and balls got dropped. But now, with the credit card bill in hand, officials have their very first clue. One day later, on Christmas Eve, a sheriff travels down to Dean's Chevron service station. Based on Mr. Martin's receipt, the clerk says the missing family most likely stopped at the station sometime between noon and 3 p.m. It's not much, but it's the most progress the case has received yet. 
Unfortunately, after the lead runs cold, the investigation comes to another grinding halt. At least publicly. Privately, officials have been sitting on a potentially explosive lead for weeks. Between December 8th and 18th, almost a dozen witnesses called to report a suspicious looking car on the side of Highway 30, abandoned about eight miles east of Dean's Chevron service station. It looked incredibly out of place. It had been souped up with added detailing and aftermarket parts. Not to mention, it had out-of-state plates, and the keys were still hanging in the ignition. By the time officials are speaking with the clerk at Dean Chevron, they've already learned the abandoned cars connected to an ex-convict named Lester Kenneth Price. Price either borrowed or stole it from a friend and drove up to Oregon from California. The purpose of his trip was reportedly to visit his wife and kid, but his current whereabouts were unknown. Naturally, officials start digging up information to find out when Price arrived in Oregon, thinking maybe he had a hand in the Martins' disappearance. The timing seemed oddly coincidental. But here's where things really start to get complicated. See, police learned Price had an alibi for the day the Martins went missing. According to his former employer, Price worked for them in California until December 9th. But those dates don't add up. As I said, an eyewitness first reported Price's abandoned car on Highway 30 on December 8th, the day before he supposedly left his job in LA. It's confusing, it's suspicious, but none of this information about price, about the car, hits the papers until after Christmas. Maybe because officials didn't want to incite a panic around the holidays. But the story breaks on Sunday, December 28th, and the next day, papers print Price's mugshots. Around the same time, investigators receive their next big lead. A waitress named Clara York at the Paradise Snack Bar in Hood River remembers serving the Martins a late lunch just before dusk on the 7th, around 4 to 4.30 p.m. The restaurant's about 20 miles further east from the Dean's Chevron station. Clara remembers the girls ate hamburgers and french fries. The family was in good spirits, and when they left, they turned west toward Portland. Maybe the Martins did travel further east for their Christmas greenery, then ate at the restaurant on their way home. After their meal, they would have been about an hour away, meaning the Martins most likely disappeared sometime between 4 p.m. and 5 p.m., somewhere along the 60-mile stretch of highway. For investigators, it's progress, but they still believe they're dealing with an accident. The Martin station wagon most likely slid off the highway and into the river. And this doesn't change. Even when the owner of the Paradise Snack Bar places the Martins and Lester Kenneth Price in the same room, at the same time. Seriously, he claims Price came into the restaurant with another ex-con, known only as Roy Light. And they ate a meal together while the Martins were there. Plus, if he remembers correctly, Price and Light left around the same time as the Martins did, sometime before 
According to writer J.B. Fisher, for the most part, investigators don't pursue the possibility of foul play further. They let it go, which to some extent, I understand. With Price's alibis, they're up against so much uncertainty. You can't build an investigation around hearsay. And in February 1959, new evidence surfaces that suggests maybe officials were right all along. One detective finds tire tracks leading straight into the river, about five miles east of Cascade Locks, the town where the Martins stopped for gas. He also finds paint chips on a cliff face nearby. FBI tests confirm the paint and tire impressions match the make and model of the Martins' car. Then, on May 3rd, 1959, just outside of Portland, a tugboat operator removing logs from the Columbia River finds himself staring at the lifeless body of a young girl. She's floating in the water, wearing striped capri pants. Her face is partially covered by her coat. He immediately calls the sheriff's department. There aren't a lot of kids disappearing in Oregon in the 1950s. So when the girl's body comes in, the first thing the coroner does is check her teeth against the Martin's existing dental records. And he confirms, it's Susie, the youngest. Officials plan for divers to scour the waters near where she was found, but they never do. Because one day later, the next body finds them. 25 miles east of where the tugboat operator found Susie, a dam engineer stumbles upon the body of another young girl floating in the river. She's wearing blue jeans and a sweatshirt. It's Virginia, the Martins' second oldest daughter. After autopsies are scheduled and completed, they confirm two important details for investigators. First, not long before passing, the girls ate hamburgers and french fries. So the Martin family did visit the Paradise Snack Bar. And second, Virginia and Susie died by drowning. Now, the coroner also notes that the girl's clothes, organs, and skin are all unusually well-preserved, like they've been held under very cold, very deep water for months. Their faces show signs of exposure to air, likely from the days they spent drifting downstream after floating to the surface. Of course, the simplest explanation for this is they were trapped underwater in their station wagon until something extremely heavy and strong, like a tugboat anchor, came into contact with the car and forced their release. But in order to confirm this theory, investigators needed to either find the car or find Ken, Barbara, and Barbie. Unfortunately, fate might've had other plans. Two days after Virginia is found, a fisherman spots two bodies floating downriver from the Cascade Locks. But they're never recovered. Even after officials drag huge swaths of river with grappling hooks and magnets, nothing else and no one else is found. It's the latest in a series of heartbreaking stop-starts. But with Susie and Virginia confirmed dead, Authorities seem mostly satisfied that they've solved the case. For the Martins' friends and family, like Charlotte Dorsey, it's hard to know where to go from here. Whether to keep pushing authorities for more answers, to wait patiently, or try their best to move on. 
before the end of the year, a memorial service is held for all of the Martins. Their friends, family, and neighbors all come together to acknowledge the loss of five of their loved ones, to mourn, to celebrate. But one person is notably absent, the sixth member of the Martin family. Ken and Barbara went missing with three children, but they actually had four. At the time the Martins go missing, Donald Martin is an adult. He's 28 years old, enlisted in the Navy, and stationed in New York. He also teaches scuba diving lessons and takes night classes at Hunter College on the side. In short, he's busy. But I'm confident his superiors would have granted him leave at any point in time between December 1958 and May 1959 to return home and search for his missing family. But Donald doesn't fly back to Portland until June 1959, after his sister's private funerals to inherit his family's estate as the sole benefactor. Obviously, the optics of this don't look good, especially if Donald happened to know the specifics of his parents' will. Whether he did or didn't, I don't know. Now, to be very, very clear, Donald never actually hides. By all accounts, he cooperates with detectives throughout their investigation. He answers any questions they have over the phone. He just doesn't go out of his way to help. And even despite his cooperation, Donald seems to be aware that his actions are a little suspicious. When he speaks to reporters, he makes sure to mention that his aunt, Charlotte Dorsey, encouraged him to stay in New York. Presumably, the idea being with so many people already on the ground, there was no need for him to go through the pain of being home. Now, whether his account can be believed, I don't know, but there are articles and police reports that seem to contradict his statement and suggest the Dorseys were actually confused by Donald's decision to stay in New York. Regardless of what's true and what's not, Donald's actions catch the eye of one criminal detective, Walter Graven. Graven's actually the detective who investigated the tire tracks and paint chips near Cascade Locks. He's also one of the only people working the Martins case willing to pursue the possibility of foul play. And based on Graven's notes, he's considered three individuals persons of interest, Lester Kenneth Price, Roy Light, and Donald Martin. I'll explain more, but first, it's important to get some background on Donald. Donald had a complicated relationship with his parents. Before moving to New York, he worked on and off at a department store in Portland, but he was fired in September, 1955, three years before his family disappeared, after he stole about $2,000 worth of merchandise. Then, Mr. Martin had to foot the bill, which led to a considerable amount of tension between them. And when Donald moved to the East Coast, he didn't do so willingly. According to Walter Graven's reports, around the same time of Donald's theft, he told his parents about a relationship he was having with another man. And his parents didn't approve. They basically forced him to enroll at Trinity College, a Catholic university in Connecticut, hoping it would, quote, set him on a new path. But Donald hates it, 
drops out, enlists in the Navy, and moves to New York. Now, stealing $2,000 worth of your employer's merchandise is wrong. Rejecting your child for who they are is also wrong. And I want to be very clear. I'm not suggesting that any of this on its own could be a possible motive for Donald to kill his entire family. I mean, his younger sisters had nothing to do with it. If anything, it explains why Donald kept his distance. But for everything we do know about Donald's relationship with his family, there's so much more that we don't. Not to mention, besides the fact that Donald stood to inherit their estate, there are other reasons Detective Graven took an interest in the oldest Martin child. A few weeks after the Martins went missing, in January 1959, a man searching the cliffs near Cascade Locks found a 38 Colt Commander handgun. The gun found has dried blood on the handle and is damaged, as if it had been used as a blunt force weapon. But more importantly, one bullet had been fired from the chamber and the serial number matches a gun that was stolen from the same department store Donald Martin worked at and stole a bunch of items from. Detective Graven makes this connection at the time, and he brings the evidence to his boss. But because the gun was found outside of Graven's jurisdiction, he's unable to pursue the new lead. The local sheriff would have to continue the investigation, but for reasons I can't begin to explain, that doesn't happen. The gun isn't even entered into evidence. It's just returned to the guy who found it. In May 1959, Graven is troubled enough by what's happening that he writes a report titled, Coincidences in the Martin Case. He says up front that he's not trying to make a murder out of an accident or vice versa. He simply wants to detail all of the strange things he's noticed during his investigation. Maybe when it's all compiled in black and white, it'll make more sense or someone will care. His report includes a statement made to the FBI by a local couple. On the afternoon the Martins disappeared, they apparently saw a white and red station wagon driving incredibly fast and erratically down Highway 30. Later, they passed the station wagon again, but this time it was pulled over on the side of the road. Two men stood outside, talking to whatever passengers were still in the car. Several other witness accounts corroborate some version of this story too. Later in the day, a pair of fishermen even saw a station wagon matching the description of the Martins parked on the side of the highway with no one inside. It's a carefully thought out report, months of investigative work, but it's not well received. Graven's basically told to stop worrying about what doesn't add up and leave it to the local stations. Then they take Graven off the case altogether. After that, six years pass without any real updates on the Martins. Then in April of 1965, two Oregon State Police officers pay Graven a visit. They tell him the bigwigs who were in charge of the Martin case are gone now. 
they want him to take another shot at it. Graven schedules professional diving teams to finally scour the river. He feels like certainty is waiting somewhere under the surface, but all the hope he feels gets snatched away when at the last minute, the dives are canceled. The only explanation he's given is it's too dangerous. Graven tries pushing back, but he doesn't even get a response. True to character, he writes one last report stating his opinion. They were making a mistake. No seasoned diver would have any issue searching the area. It wasn't too dangerous. After exhausting all his options, Graven gives up. Two years later, in 1967, almost a decade after the Martins' disappearance, a reporter for the Oregonian newspaper named Ann Sullivan basically takes up Graven's mantle. She runs into similar stonewalling, but ultimately finds evidence of what exactly Detective Graven was up against. The sheer number of law enforcement agencies with competing agendas involved with the case how justice may have not been the real priority. She throws a lot of weight behind the idea that there might have been foul play, pointing out all the elements of the case that have been under investigated. And it turns out, the reasons may have had something to do with an entirely different criminal case. Okay, stay with me here. According to author J.B. Fisher, around the time the Martins disappeared, there was basically this massive investigation into bootlegging and drug operations. One of the men wrapped up in the scandal was a guy named Clifford Bennett. He ran a brothel in Dallesport, a town about 30 minutes east of Hood River. Bennett was notorious for bribing law enforcement. How does this relate to the Martins? Well, Lester Kenneth Price and Roy Light supposedly were seen visiting his establishment shortly after the family disappeared. So it's essentially possible that certain officials didn't want to pursue the possibility of foul play because then they'd be forced to investigate Bennett. And if they opened that can of worms, they might expose their own misdeeds. And if that's not bad enough, there's even some evidence to suggest that the Martins case was mishandled on a federal level as well. As recently as the mid 2000s, writer J.B. Fisher tried to obtain an FBI file on Ken Martin using the Freedom of Information Act. And what did the FBI tell him? The file was probably destroyed when a new director took over in 1993. And what's worse, there's no way to confirm if there are or were any files on the rest of the family, which obviously doesn't sit right with me at all. Why destroy case files for a famous unsolved case? So what happened to the Martin family? After inheriting his family's estate, Donald Martin marries a woman, starts a family, and never tells any of them what happened to his family back in 1958. Does that mean he hired two ex-cons to get rid of them? No. Sometimes people just want to move past their trauma. Move on. Sometimes coincidences really are just that. 
Ken Martin's parents and his sister, Charlotte Dorsey, go to their graves believing their family were victims of a tragic accident. Maybe because it felt easier. Maybe because they were right. I can't say what happened to the Martin family, because more than 50 years later, there's still so much uncertainty. The only thing I can say for sure is, it's only there because the people hired to find answers didn't give them a thorough and fair investigation. Next week, I'll cover not one, but two different cases that each reflect a crisis that has slid under the radar for decades. Thank you for listening. In the time it took you to listen to this episode, 30 people disappeared in the United States alone. If you or someone you know needs assistance with a missing persons case, please visit seasonofjustice.org. Season of Justice is a nonprofit organization that provides funding to law enforcement agencies and families to help solve cold cases. For full disclosure, I am a member of the board. It's a great resource for both law enforcement and families in order to bring closure to those impacted by unsolved violent crime. You can find all episodes of Disappearances and all other Spotify originals from Parcast for free on Spotify. Disappearances stars Sarah Turney and is a Spotify original from Parcast. It is executive produced by Max Cutler, sound design by Alex Button, with production assistance by Ron Shapiro, Trent Williamson, and Carly Madden. This episode of Disappearances was written by Mackenzie Moore, with writing assistance by Maggie Admire and Connor Sampson. Fact-checking by Cara Mackerlein and research by Mickey Taylor. To hear more stories hosted by me, check out my other podcast, Voices for Justice.